Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco North. Visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco, Texas, and book your stay at the Hampton Inn, Waco North. This episode, In the Dugout with University of Texas coaching legend Cliff Gustafson. We'll take a look at the life and career of Texas Sports Hall of Famer Cliff Gustafson. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Michael, author of The Game Before the Money and writer-director of We Were the Oilers, the Love You Blue era. Before the 1968 baseball season, University of Texas Athletic Director Daryl Royal hired South San Antonio High School baseball coach Cliff Gustafson to lead the Longhorns. Gustafson took over the Texas baseball program from Bib Falk, who had been hired in 1940 and guided Texas to -to back-to-back national championships in 1949 and 1950. Gustafson then led the Longhorns to an unprecedented 17 trips to the College World Series, winning two national championships. He retired with the most career wins in college baseball history and coached a multitude of future major leaguers, including Burt Hooten, Roger Clemens, Andre Robertson, Keith Moreland, Calvin Schiraldi, David Schock, Spike Owen, and Greg Swindell. Gustafson's life story begins on a farm in Kennedy, Texas. Hard times hit the family early, and they grew deeper in debt each year. My dad died when I was five, and my mom was left with four kids to raise. It was just tough, but my two older sisters had graduated from Kennedy High School and went to San Antonio and got civil service jobs, and they convinced my mother that she could do better by coming to San Antonio and getting one of those jobs. So when I was 12, we moved to San Antonio. On the farm, Cliff Gustafson's Uncle Lewis began teaching him about baseball when he was six or seven years old. His Uncle Lewis was a diehard Yankee fan going back to the Lou Gehrig days. Moving to San Antonio gave the young Gustafson an added opportunity to play sports. Things brightened for me pretty quickly there because I got to start participating in athletics, which we didn't have at that little country school. Then I got started playing baseball. Gustafson attended Harlandale High School in San Antonio and quickly made an impact on the school's baseball team. I had good years in the high school ranks in baseball. In fact, first year I ever played baseball, playing shortstop for my high school. And I was picked the MVP in the city of San Antonio. <laughs> I've got a picture on my refrigerator of that team. And I was a little guy then. He had big aspirations, however, and hoped to play for the University of Texas baseball team managed by Bib Falk. I had written to Bib Falk asking about the possibility of coming up there and playing for him. And I got a letter back from him saying he would watch me and have me watched. And then I got another letter asking me to come to Texas, and he put me on a partial scholarship. 
Gustafson arrived at the University of Texas at a time when freshmen couldn't play varsity baseball. He did, however, practice with the team that won the 1949 National Championship. You know, I was on the squad in 49, but I never did get to play, and I didn't get to go to the College World Series with them. But I knew all those guys and practiced against them every day. And then the next year, I was on the varsity, but didn't get to play. But I competed with those good players every day. And 51 was my first year of playing on the varsity. After his UT baseball playing career ended, Gustafson attended a coaching school in Houston. He found himself deciding between three job opportunities. Well, I went to coaching school in Houston, and I ran into the Southland basketball coach and athletic director. He also coached the baseball team, and he said he had a junior job open that I could have, and I offered a couple of high school basketball jobs. But my mom was living by herself in San Antonio, and I went out and talked to the superintendent at South San. He convinced me that I might ought to start in junior high. So I did, and I coached junior high football, basketball, and baseball. And then we had a pony league team that they invited me to coach. His coaching stint in the junior high ranks didn't last long. The baseball coach resigned at the end of that year, and the new athletic director asked me to go to lunch with him. And before we even got to the restaurant, he said, by the way, you're going to be the head baseball coach next year. Gustafson took over the reins at South San Antonio High School, but still had a lot to learn. I wasn't a very good coach that first year because I didn't know how to coach high school baseball. He says the South San Antonio High School basketball coach taught him the importance of situational and fundamental drills. Those drills became a pillar of Gustafson's coaching philosophy. He had drills in basketball for everything that could possibly happen. So the next year, my second year, I started using drills for everything that could happen on the baseball field. And I used those drills all the way through my coaching career, even when I went to Texas. The use of those drills provided immediate results in the win column. I started using drills and won the district championship and won them every year after that. And I won seven state championships there in the last 10 years. And that's what got Darrell Royal's attention. When Texas baseball coach Bib Falk retired, Daryl Royal placed a phone call to the Gustafson residence. Coach Gustafson shares with us his memories of the conversation. I knew it was Coach Royal. My wife was standing there close to me and kept asking me who it was. And I'd mouth Daryl Royal to her. He went over a lot of things, and I knew that he wasn't going into all those details unless he thought I was the guy. And when I got off the phone... She said, was that really Daryl Royal? I said, yeah, he's going to offer me that job. She said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'll have to take it. She said, why? Don't you like it here? I said, yeah, I love it there, but I can't turn down the University of Texas. Royal placed the call on a Sunday. By Tuesday, Gustafson was meeting in his office. Spent about three hours with him, 
But he never did come right out and say, it's your job. I got ready to leave, and I said to myself, I'm not leaving here without knowing whether I really have this job or not. So uh, as I got up, I said, I like everything you've told me about it, and I'd have to say if I were offered a job, I would accept it. He said, what's yours? I thought I'd already told you. I said, no, sir, you never did really tell me. He said, well, I want you to start here July the 1st. Of course, everybody needs to get paid to do their job. Coach Gustafson shares with us a great story about the salary negotiations he had with Royal. What I did was I made a mistake. By that time, I'd been elevated to the athletic director job at South Sand too, and I was making six thousand six hundred. A lot of that was because of the athletic director job. Baseball coaches just didn't make that much. So he asked me what my salary was, and I didn't dare to tell him 6600 because I didn't think he'd give me that much. And I said, well, I'm making 6000 So when we were talking in his office, we don't have a problem with a salary. We can give you 6000 here. So I took a $600 cut to come to Texas. <laughs> Except for a couple of years during World War II when Blair Cherry coached the UT baseball team, Texas had only known two baseball coaches since 1911. Billy Dish coached the UT Longhorns from 1911 through 1939 and won 20 Southwest Conference titles. Bib Falk also won 20 Southwest Conference titles and two national championships. He went from playing college baseball for the University of Texas to playing Major League Baseball for the Chicago White Sox in 1920. In those 56 years, Dish and Falk built Texas into a baseball powerhouse. Jimmy Raup pitched for Bib Falk before serving as an assistant coach for Cliff Gustafson. He puts Gustafson's hiring into perspective when measured against Dish and Falk. How daring it was for Darrell Royal to hire a high school coach coming in to take over one of the best baseball programs in the nation. I don't think that would ever happen again. Now, granted, Cliff Gustafson was not your ordinary high school coach. He had won seven state championships at South San Antonio, and he also had played at Texas. But just think about it. Billy Dish, Bib Falk, and a high school coach. That's pretty amazing. Southwest Conference play wouldn't get off to an amazing start for Cliff Gustafson in his first season, however, as the Longhorns lost their first three games. We lost each one of them by one run. I saw Darrell Royal in the hall. He said, don't worry about it. Keep working. Things will change. And that made me feel easier because I thought he might fire me. All's well that ends well, as Shakespeare might say and the Longhorns' regular season ended on a high note. We got a lucky break, which I was a lucky guy all the way around. We went to TCU for a road two-game series, and TCU was the leading team in the conference, and they beat us the first game, and we beat them the second game, which we had to win to be in contention. And we had a two-game series with A&M, and they were very good. And we got rained out both games. So that left me leading TCU by half a game. So we won the conference. 
The rainouts and Southwest Conference Championship vaulted Texas into the NCAA playoffs. The Longhorns defeated Texas Pan American two games out of three and advanced to the College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. Texas was eliminated from the 1968 College World Series after three games, but that was only the first of 17 trips Cliff Gustafson would make to Omaha. In 1969, the Texas Longhorns welcomed freshman Burt Hooten into the program. He went 12-0 with a .088 ERA. Burt Hooten was the best college pitcher I ever saw. Not just for me, but for anybody. He had a great pitch called a knuckle curveball that he threw regularly and dropped. The Texas Longhorns also had James Street pitching who had quarterbacked the Texas Longhorns to a national championship in football. Texas again made it to Omaha in the College World Series and drew a tough Arizona State team for Game 1. Future Kansas City Royals star Larry Gura would be the Sun Devils' starting pitcher. Coach Gustafson countered with his rookie sensation Burt Hooten on the mound. Arizona State was ranked number one coming into the series, and people couldn't believe I'd start a freshman against Arizona State. Well, he pitched a shutout against him. Texas won four to nothing and eventually advanced to the semifinals. They played NYU and trailed three to two in the ninth inning. They got the leadoff runner on base, and then a controversial call against the Longhorns pushed their hopes aside. Bill Little who served as sports information director for the University of Texas for over 40 years, remembers the play well. It likely was the most famous blown call in the College World Series. Texas was playing NYU, and the Longhorns actually had the tying run at second base, and a guy named Jack Miller hit the ball down the first baseline. There are two outs. The runner at second now is the tying run, and he is going home to score, and... As Jack Miller dived into first base from home plate side, the first baseman dived for the back. They collided at exactly the same time, and the ball exploded down the right field line. But the umpire sees the guy's glove hit the bag and rings him out and turns to run to the dugout. Well, he does not see, nor do any of the other umpires, they don't see the ball burst down the right field foul line. So Cliff goes out, as does much of the Texas team, Screaming, Mr. Umpire, Mr. Umpire, he dropped the ball. And the umpire said, no, he didn't. And Cliff goes, well, what's the right fielder doing with it? And the guy turns around and looks, and he goes, oh, hey, fellas. And he he calls all the umpires together, and nobody saw it. I protested that as hard as long as I could, but it didn't change anything, and we lost the game. So the tying run actually would have scored on the play. The guy who slid into first base would have been alive and on board at the time, but instead it didn't happen. The only people who saw it were the entire committee of college baseball who were sitting in the stands, and they knew that the call was blown, but by their rules and their interpretations, they couldn't override it. So the call stood, Texas went home. Everything was understandable. When you go back and recreate it, you can see how each piece of that happened. But at the same time, it wasn't right, and unfortunately, there was no way to overturn it. Fortunes would change for Cliff Gustafson and the Texas Longhorns in future College World Series, however. Very bright days were on the horizon. We'll reminisce about those days with Cliff Gustafson and his players when we return to In the Dugout with Cliff Gustafson on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, 
Presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco North. This is Cliff Harris, Free Safety for the Dallas Cowboys. You're listening to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Enjoy it. If you've enjoyed listening today, please visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. The museum tells a story of the greatest athletes and coaches in Texas history by using objects from its collection, which numbers over 15,000. And when you come to Waco, be sure and stay at the Hampton Inn Waco North, located just eight minutes from the museum on I-35. The Hampton Inn has recently been renovated and includes free hot breakfast, free Wi-Fi, and an indoor-outdoor pool. And since the Hampton Inn is the official hotel of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, you never know who you might bump into in the lobby. Hey, is that Earl Campbell? And now back to In the Dugout with Cliff Gustafson on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco North. Well, 1975 was such an important year for us because it was like being on a merry-go-round and reaching for the brass ring. When Cliff got here in 68, we went to the World Series the first year, and then in 69 and 70, we were really in contention uh, both seasons. 71, we didn't make the playoffs because Pan American beat us out in San Antonio. And then in 72 and 73 and 74, we were very competitive and we were just, like I said, like being on the merry-go-round and reaching out for the brass ring and not quite getting it. Future major leaguer Keith Moreland shares what it was like to reach for that brass ring as a player. It was a really good group of freshmen that came in in that spring of 73. And then after the 74 season, I think we all looked at each other and we knew that we were going to be the leaders of the club. And that group that had come in together as freshmen were a junior and we were tired of being the bridesmaid. It was time for us to be the bride. The 1975 campaign was historic from the very start. Austin American statesman writer Kirk Bowles remembers beginning the season at Dishfalk Field and Moreland discusses how the new stadium inspired the team. It was such a historic year because that was their first year to play in Dishfalk Field and that thing was a palace. You know, AstroTurf, 5,000 stadium, permanent structure, huge scoreboard, green monster in center field. Uh, in Texas, one of the richest college baseball programs in the country in terms of tradition and honors and accolades and resources. We were opening up a brand new facility, the, the best in the country. Nobody had anything quite like it in, in college baseball anywhere in the country. And we were a group that had one goal in mind. It wasn't getting Omaha. It was to win the national championship. Coach didn't talk a lot about it. He talked about being the best that we can be. At our best, we're going to win this whole thing. And we did. The Longhorns demolished the Southwest Conference in 1975. In six consecutive games at home, they defeated Rice and Texas Tech by a combined score of 49-5. Later in the season, they racked up 44 runs in a three-game series on the road at Baylor. Their only conference loss was by one run on the last game of the season. Bulls and Moreland described the 1975 regular season. 
It was such a great team. They had a loaded pitching staff led by Jim Gideon, Richard Wortham, who would go on to set an NCAA record, won, I think, 50 games. But Keith Moreland was the uh, heart and soul of that team. He was uh, All-American third baseman and just a hitting machine. Once we got into conference play and the, the way we were playing on the road and at home, we were thumping people. We could beat you so many different ways. That was a little bit unusual for Coach Gus' teams. Always great pitching, starting with the history of when Coach got the job with Bert Hooten. But I don't know that we'd ever had a team that could pound the baseball. It was, it was just such a dominant team. You were shocked whenever they uh, got behind in a game, much less lose a game. The Longhorns ripped through the NCAA's new regional playoff format to get to the College World Series. Bill Little remembers a different mindset in that Longhorns team going into Omaha. And then when 75 came, it was the first time that I think Texas realized that it had a chance to win it. Until that time, Southern Cal had so dominated the College World Series that Southern Cal went expecting to win, and the rest of us went hoping to win. The USC Trojans wouldn't even be a factor in this College World Series, as Cal State Fullerton, coached by a gentleman named Augie Garrido, knocked them out in the regional playoffs. Texas would play Oklahoma in their first game. Longhorn starter Jim Gideon was 17-0 during the regular season and kept his unblemished record after a 4-2 victory against Oklahoma. But the Longhorns stumbled in their second game against Arizona State and lost 5-2. One more loss and they would be eliminated from the double elimination College World Series. Their next opponent was Seton Hall. Bill Little recounts the game and remembers Texas jumping out to an early lead. They actually scored 10 runs in the first inning and had a huge lead. And then the team came back, and it was Seton Hall, I think, and actually kind of got real dicey toward the end. And then Texas won in the end by a run or two. And Cliff's best story there was he got the team on the bus after it was over, and rather than chewing them out or doing something more drastic than that, he just simply said, Man, I'm not a drinking man, but if I were, I'd go out and find me something to drink tonight. <laughs> Texas's 12-10 victory against Seton Hall was Seton Hall's second loss of the tournament, and they packed their bags and headed home to New Jersey. Texas then scored 17 on South Carolina to hand the Gamecocks their first loss of the tournament. There were now three teams left in the College World Series, Arizona State, South Carolina, and Texas. Each had one loss. Remember how earlier in the program, Coach Gustafson said he was a pretty lucky guy? Well, his luck was about to pay off again. There were three teams tied with one loss, and we won a flip to get through the championship game, so the other two teams had to play each other to come to us. And instantly, when that happened, I don't think there was one of us of the 25 that were there and the, and the coaching staff and the trainers and everybody else that didn't know that there was nobody in America going to beat us in one game. It just wasn't going to happen. The break not only helped Texas by forcing the other two teams to play an extra game, but it also set up their pitching staff. Richard Wortham would now pitch the championship game against South Carolina on plenty of rest. Moreland remembers being confident even before the game started. The ball came around at the top of the first inning, and when you're the third base and you're the last guy to touch it before it goes to the mound, and when I pitched it to Richard, I could look in his eyes, and I knew they were going to have a long night. The confidence Moreland and his teammates shared would be reinforced early. Uh, I got on, and, and Mickey Reichenbach hit a homer. 
So it started to set the tone early. The game was never really close. Wortham pitched the Longhorns to a 5-1 victory. The Longhorns won their first national championship under Cliff Gustafson. Mickey Reichenbach would be named most outstanding player of the College World Series. It took more than a little bit of luck to bring the national championship home to Austin. And a lot of that comes from what Coach did in his preparation and how we prepared. Nobody in the country outworked us, I guarantee you. In those days, there were no NCAA rules as to how long you could practice. And so if somebody wanted to know where they could find a baseball player or a coach, we could say, well, they're over at the baseball field because they practice from noon till dark. We were well drilled all the time on everything. I think that was the key to us winning some close games and being that good. The drills that Cliff Gustafson employed prepared his players for every situation. Jimmy Ralph and Keith Moreland explained one drill that helped make the Longhorns champions. Coach Gustafson drilled his players incessantly on situation after situation after situation. He had something that he called a defensive game where his starters were in the field and everybody else was hitting and the offense scored in the normal way with base hits and walks and hit by pitches and the defense scored by getting three outs without giving up a run and he could structure those defensive games into specific situations like he might say okay he put runners at second and third one out infield in and then go back to pitching to the hitter and the result was nothing happened in a baseball game to Cliff Gustafson's team that they weren't prepared for because they had seen it multiple times in practice. It was a real-life situation, and it was one of the most fantastic drills for getting cutoffs and relays, knowing where everybody was at. So everybody knew where every other person on the field was supposed to be and was going to be there. You didn't have to look for them. It just made communication on the field so much better. Team preparation through situational drills wasn't the only aspect of college baseball at which Coach Gustafson excelled. When Cliff came, he brought a recruiting advantage. The youth that he had and the energy he wanted to put in there really helped him. Coach Falk didn't recruit. Coach Falk had players sent to him by professional scouts or other people who saw people play and recommended. He didn't go out and recruit. Coach Gustafson got in his car with his assistant coach, which at the, at the time it was Bill Berthay, and they drove to high school fields and watched players with their own two eyes. He could make the kids like him, very folksy, friendly in his recruiting methods and so he got most of the players he wanted and then when they got here they got better because of his meticulous attention to detail. By the 1980s coach Gustafson had turned Dishfalk Field into a field of dreams for many players. Kids just didn't dream about playing in the major leagues. They also dreamed about playing for the Texas Longhorns. Roger Clemens arrived at the University of Texas before the 1982 season, but the seeds of him pitching for the Longhorns were planted in high school. Roger Clemens tells us the story. My high school coach, Charlie Mariana, always took us up to Dishfalk Field to look at it. We'd play a tournament up that way, and he would always stop by the field there at the university to give us inspiration to try and make the state championship. It was just a spectacular setting, and of course then you had in the University of Texas. After high school, Clemens pitched a year of junior college baseball. He was drafted by the New York Mets and had offers to go to several universities. Coach Gustafson won the sweepstakes. 
think I got drafted by the New York Mets, but I knew that I wanted to go to a four-year school, and a bunch of them came calling. And once I got a phone call from Coach Gus about becoming a Longhorn, it was a pretty easy decision for me. Clemens wasn't the only outstanding baseball player on Cliff Gustafson's 1982 Texas Longhorns. Shortstop Spike Owen would be drafted high in the first round of the Major League Draft that year. Center fielder Mike Brumley was also a future Major Leaguer, as was pitcher Calvin Schiraldi. But the top two pitchers on the team, Kirk Killingsworth and Mike Capel, didn't lose a game all season. The team finished with a 59-6 and record. Bill Little and Roger Clemens share their thoughts on Gustafson's 1982 squad. The 82 team was one of the best Texas ever had. And it came down to, as it always does in baseball, it came down to the bounce of the ball or the luck of the draw. Still, you're devastated. Like, in 82, we lost Spike Owen to the draft. I mean, I thought... Our winning ways at Texas were over when Spike got drafted because he was the go-to guy. I mean, for me, he was Mr. Austin. I think we had a better team in 82 when we finished tied for third in Omaha than the 83 team. The only difference was, which you can't put any kind of price tag on, is that we were far more experienced as a pitching staff. All four of the starting pitchers from the 1982 team, Kirk Killingsworth, Calvin Schiraldi, Roger Clemens, and Mike Capel returned for the 1983 season. But 83 had the best pitching staff that may have ever been assembled as far as college baseball was concerned. You go down the list of those guys, and the only thing that was comparable to it was in 69 and 70, Texas had James Street, Larry Hardy, and Bert Hooten. Expectations for the Texas Longhorns were very high coming into the 1983 season. All of us starters were on a lot of the magazines, and uh, we got off to a very rough start. Coach, you know, he never did really raise his voice that much. He just spoke from the heart and directly at you. We had a team meeting about after the fifth or sixth game, I think it was, and it was a good one. He, you know, he let us have it a little bit in his own way. Like I said, he really didn't have to raise his voice, but he lit into us and told us to quit reading our press clippings about how good we were, that we still have to go on the field and do it. And um, I think that was the biggest challenge that we knew. We knew that everybody that came into Austin to play us, that was kind of like their mini World Series because they were playing the premier program in the country. The Longhorns responded to Coach Gustafson's meeting and had a stretch of winning 40 of 45 games. Calvin Schiraldi anchored the pitching staff with a 14-2 record and a 1.74 ERA. He earned All-American honors and the Longhorns earned a spot in the NCAA Regionals. They'd face tough competition. I remember that we had to come out of our own regional and beat a very talented Mississippi State team. We went to the loser's bracket. We had to beat them twice, which was a task in itself just to get to Omaha. Mississippi State had four players that would become all-stars in Major League Baseball. Will Clark, Bobby Thigpen, Rafael Palmera, and Jeff Brantley. Texas actually was in a situation where they went into Sunday having to win two games. In the afternoon game, a guy named Steve LeBay, a left-hander that never played in the pros, he pitched a shutout to beat Mississippi State in the first game. And to do it in the final game, they pitched Giraldi for seven innings and relieved with Clemens. Clemens says Coach Gustafson mentally and physically prepared the Longhorns to win. 
The team even lifted weights in the same gym as the football players and regularly ran for three miles. Texas marched into Omaha and beat James Madison 12 to nothing. They won the next two games in extra innings. Kirk Bowles remembers their fourth game against Michigan. Michigan had Chris Sabo and Barry Larkin, the, the Hall of Fame shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds in the future. And Mike Capel just ran through them like warm butter. After the 4-2 victory over Michigan, Texas remained undefeated in the tournament at 4-0. A win over Alabama in the next game would give Texas the national championship. Coach Gustafson turned to Roger Clemens to pitch. Coach Gus always loved to send me out there against teams that crowded the plate and that were big power hitters because I pitched aggressively up in the zone for strikes and then uh, my breaking ball was good down. I was a power pitcher, and he noticed that right out of the gate, that I could pitch even if I didn't have my plus-plus fastball. Alabama jumped ahead 2-0, but Texas would fight back to tie the game, with the score tied at 2 in the 7th inning. Kirk Killingsworth knocked in a triple to score Mike Brumley. Then Jose Tolentino surprised everyone with a bunt that scored Killingsworth. Texas led 4-2. They would take that lead into the ninth inning, with a determined Roger Clemens still on the mound. I remember throwing a lot of pitches, and they were really taxing because the game was so close. In the ninth inning, we had a two-run lead going to the ninth, and they scored a run off of Clemens. I knew he was getting kind of tired, and I just thought, well, it's time to get him out of there. I had another good pitcher, Calvin Chiraldi, and I was going to bring him in. And before I got to the mound, Clemens met me. He said, I'm not coming out, Coach. I've got it. This is my game. And I think to try and break up the uh, serious nature of everything, I said, I'm not coming out, Coach. So uh, this is, you know, I probably said it was my game, something like that. But I remember telling him, I'm not coming out of this game. And he said, what's the problem? And I think I told him to make light of it. I said, I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I said, said, I'm hungry. And I've been out here for three hours. I said, all right, big fella, go get him. And he finished the game and won it. Texas won 4-3 to and had gone through the College World Series undefeated. The 1983 National Championship was the second that the Longhorns had won under coach Cliff Gustafson. For Clemens personally, he tells us it was an emotional victory as well. Very emotional because I knew that my father that I had lost was watching over me and uh, it was just a really emotional deal because I had already been drafted by the Boston Red Sox, so I knew I was going to be able to help change my mother's life, who was working three jobs at the time. So there was a lot of things other than just winning the national championship that was on my shoulders. ESPN televised the Texas-Alabama game that won Texas the national championship. A Texas pitching recruit named Greg Swindell was watching, and he knew he had made the right choice to come to Texas. In fact, he told us it was an opportunity he could not turn down. So as Roger Clemens and Calvin Schiraldi followed their path to Major League Baseball, future Major Leaguers Greg Swindell and Bruce Ruffin took their place in Austin. Really, at Texas in those days, you didn't rebuild. We reloaded. 84 was a very good ball club. Swindell was was a freshman, and it had a chance to win it all. Wound up losing to Augie, in fact, in the College World Series in 84. Swindell had made All-American his freshman year. He told us that weight training jumped the velocity on his fastball from 84 to 85 miles an hour 
to 90 or 93 miles an hour. He felt the trust that Coach Gustafson gave him. The result in 1985 was a 19-2 record with a 1.67 ERA. And again, another All-American campaign for Greg Swindell. And while the 1984 team came close to winning the national championship, the 1985 team came even closer. We were there two weeks before it stopped raining enough for us to finally get to play, and we wound up losing the final game. And it all came because of a simple drop pop-up that had it not fallen, we would have won that ball game and would have won the series in 85. Then in 86, which was Greg's junior year, by that time we were beginning to see the results of other teams and other schools building their programs to match Texas. The College World Series grew in popularity in large part to ESPN broadcasts. Subsequently, schools put more funding in their baseball programs. Teams such as LSU and Wichita State started to become regular participants in the College World Series. Gustafson would face both in the 1989 College World Series. Kirk Bowles remembers. 89 was probably one of the most impressive years for Cliff Gustafson as a coach because that wasn't a loaded pitching staff. They just kind of really had their struggles that year. Texas finished third in the Southwest Conference that year. Still, they made it through the NCAA regionals and earned a berth in the College World Series. They won their first two games of the 1989 College World Series by a combined score of 19-3. to Things were coming together at the right time for Coach Gustafson. They then took on a stout LSU team, which featured future major leaguer Ben McDonald pitching. Coach Gustafson noted something that helped his team. Gus always coached from the third base box, and he was a master at stealing signs. And depending on where Ben McDonald put the ball in his glove, whether it was uh, way deep down in the webbing or up to the top of his glove, he knew whether it's going to be a fastball or a, a breaking pitch, and he was able to relay that to his batter. And that was a big, big moment for them as far as getting past LSU and winning that game. The 12-7 win left Texas as the only unbeaten team left in Omaha. But the rules had changed that year. It was no longer a double elimination tournament, and Texas would play Wichita State, who had already lost a game in the championship. Texas lost to Gene Stevenson's Wichita State team in the championship game, and Texas had like five errors that game and didn't play very well. That was almost a two-man team with Scott Bryant and Kurt Dressendorfer, but they made it all the way to Omaha. They made it also to the championship game and came within one win of a third national title for Coach Gus. Cliff Gustafson would make the College World Series two more times in 1992 and 1993 with a team powered by Brooks Kieschnick who'd be a first-round Major League draft choice. Coach Gus retired after the 1996 season. He retired with the most wins and the most College World Series appearances in college baseball history. There was also one other often-overlooked stat on Coach Gus's resume. He was never ejected from a game. Well, I wasn't necessarily trying to go my whole career not being ejected. I had done some umpiring when I was in high school. So when I disagreed with him, I'd go out in a casual voice. I might say, I think you missed that play. By the time I'd been there three or four years, the umpires would spread the word that when he comes out, he's right and you're wrong. He won't come out unless he's right. 
That story kind of gives a snapshot of Cliff Gustafson. As Greg Swindell told us, quote, he didn't say much, but when he did, we listened, unquote. Even umpires listened to Cliff Gustafson. And as Keith Moreland points out, Coach Gus could keep his composure even in stressful situations. He was such a cool customer under pressure. You never saw him panic. And uh, I think that because of that, none of us panicked. I asked both Moreland and Clemens what they had learned from Coach Gustafson. Their answers were strikingly similar. He taught us how to win. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. We just learned how to win. When you go to the University of Texas, we learn how to win. And that was the bottom line. Billy Dish and Bib Falk built a winning tradition at Texas. It was Cliff Gustafson, however, who carried that tradition on as college baseball went through a transition. Bill Little elaborates the point. The main thing I would say about Cliff is the fact that he was a pathfinder in the sense that at that moment, when there was a void in how college baseball was looked at, he was a major part of the image of college baseball as it transitioned with ESPN and then it became something on the national scene and the College World Series became what it is today. Cliff Gustafson not only left a lasting impression on college baseball, he left a lasting impression with his players as well. His former players would flock to Austin in February just to say hello. That's when the alumni game was the alumni game. People came back to see Coach Gus. That's how big a figure Coach Gus was. And all of his players loved him so dearly. They all showed up. The guys that were just freshly out of college, they sometimes didn't get in the alumni game to even play because there are so many of us that return. But I just hope Coach Gus and his family know how much uh, his players love him as a person and as a coach. Coach Gustafson was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 1994. Well, it's a great honor, and I'm very appreciative of it. And I can't hardly believe that I was elected to that. And after all the wins the championships, the pro ball players coached, and all the accolades. Coach Gus still remembers his roots. An important thing about my life was living on the farm and being in debt and my dad dying at age 36 when I was five years old. And we stayed on the farm. I started driving a tractor when I was 10 and doing a lot of the farming myself and I thought I was going to be a farmer all my life until we moved and I didn't want to move that was another blessing for me that my mom was smart enough to do that thank you for listening to In the Dugout with Cliff Gustafson on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco North. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco, Texas, and book your stay at the Hampton Inn, Waco North.